This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm joined today by my good friend, Jeff Gedman. Jeff is a co-founder and editor-in-chief of the magazine American Purpose. He did a stint at AEI, he was the CEO of Radio Free Europe, and has run the think tanks Legatum Institute in London and Aspen Institute in Berlin. So thanks so much for joining me, Jeff. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Uriel. So you and I have just spent the last three days seeing one another for something around eight hours a day, more, I think, probably 10, 12 hours a day. So first of all, I have to say that I'm surprised that you agreed to join me for yet another hour to record this podcast. But you and I are here in Berlin, and we've met, I think, with approximately 20 different political leaders, intellectuals, writers, analysts, and so forth, trying to get a sense of what the status quo is in Berlin. Where is Germany as it relates to sort of this global battle against tyranny, and specifically as it relates to the war going on in Ukraine. We've heard from people from all across the political spectrum with a host of different points of view. And so let's just start with what are some of your kind of key takeaways from the last few days? So well described, it's been an intense, full-on three days, morning, noon, night, back to back. And that's true. We've had conversations with a pretty full spectrum here in Berlin, in the national capital, for three days. But still, the key thing I think one wants to understand is change is afoot. On February 27th, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Social Democrat, gave a speech in which he used the expression Zeitenwende, and that is roughly translated the beginning of a new era. And why that? And what does that mean? Well, Germans were stunned by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They remain stunned by the atrocities. It's been jarring, I think, for German public opinion and for German elites. If you go back to that February 27th speech as a marker by Olaf Scholz, he said two things are going to happen. We're going to start investing in defense for real. He said we're going to get off this energy dependence on Russia and we're going to start to think differently about how we engage with autocrats. Those are big markers for a Germany that's been defined mostly as, as the expression goes, economic giant, but political dwarf, commercially driven, and detente oriented. This is broad brush stroke, obviously, and a little bit of generalization, exaggeration for effect. So I think you and I had three days here to come up with a snapshot assessment of where are they, and I think where they are, what, what our takeaways have been are, it's real. They were shocked. There is deep reflection, examination, and the beginnings of change. But where the rubber meets the road is the granularity, the practicality, and the operational. And my impression is you and I found broad, broad support for Ukraine. But how does that translate into policy and outcomes? And the deeper that we were digging, the more 
what area of concern there was or lack of clarity there was. So that's kind of a frame for me in three days here in Berlin. I wonder, when Chancellor Schultz gave that speech, that was three days after the invasion, right? It was February 27th. And even then, the majority of people, I think, in the world, including these intelligence agencies in the West, right? So it's not just Putin's people, but also our people said that Ukraine was going to lose at that time, I believe it was 96 hours, perhaps by the time it got into the third day, maybe they had extended that by a week or two. But they still thought that it was inevitable that Putin was going to take Kiev, it was just going to take a little bit longer. And, you know, a cynic might say that he was giving that speech at that time with the expectation that Ukraine was going to lose and that sort of nobody would end up kind of calling his bluff. What's your response to sort of that arguably cynical take on the German chancellor's attitude? So I think that's a very insightful and useful observation you made. When he made that, I think you're spot on. He thought, like many thought, this is jarring. We have to change. Entirely unacceptable. This war will be done in about a week. And then we're going to undertake these processes and this transformation and this transition. I don't think, not just Olaf Schultz, but you're right. I don't think he had any idea that six months later we would be in this, I don't know what you call it, war of attrition, meat grinder phase. It's bloody, it's intense, it's ongoing. There's no clear, certain outcome in sight. I don't think he imagined that at all. And now he's in a little bit of a pickle because, you know, he owns it with us and with the allies. And now come these really hard questions about what does the end of this conflict look like? What should Germany be providing in additional military assistance? Whole host of questions. So you're right. I think he did what he did at the time, not knowing that this war would go on for six months and it will go on longer. Where do you think that leaves us? Germany has clearly changed a fair bit of its policy. I mean, it has done, at least in rhetoric, a full 180, going from a relatively pacifist foreign policy to one that's willing to invest $100 billion in defense, and one that has sent, not a lot, but some heavy weaponry to Ukraine, which, you know, was one of the things that even at the beginning of the conflict was unthinkable. But needless to say, there's a lot of people who say that Germany's not doing enough, that Germany could do a lot more. So what's your take? I mean, is this sort of what one friend of mine called the thoughts and prayers version of diplomacy and foreign policy, the we support you as long as we don't have to give you anything? Or is this, you know, we're genuinely going to do as much as we can within the confines of kind of the uniquely German context? I think within the confines of the uniquely German context, so I think there are two sides to this coin, genuinely. If you had told me back in February that Germany would take in a million Ukrainian refugees warmly, energetically, that Germany would commit this amount of economic aid and military assistance, that Germans would be talking about a Marshall Plan and a German 
and European role, and that Germans would be with us on sanctions, and Germans would be with Germany on reducing in rapid fashion energy dependence. I was, wait a second, you know, it's only March 2nd. Don't get ahead of yourself. This is a civilian power, chiefly a cautious country in foreign policy, largely, I think, they have done exceptionally well in a short amount of time, shaking off lots and lots of habits, I think unfortunate habits, but nevertheless from the past. Now, to your other point, can they and should they be doing more? Well, sure, I think the Biden administration actually can and should be doing more. So it depends on what yardstick, what measuring stick you're using. It's my hope twofold. A, that they continue with military assistance, not wait for the United States, and assume more of a leadership role. It's strategically and morally and politically the right thing to do. And B, stick with Ukraine politically. Stick, stick, stick. Don't go wobbly over fake peace plans employed by Vladimir Putin. That's what the next six months will tell us. So you talk about fake peace plans from Vladimir Putin. I mean, this is something you and I have talked a lot about over the last few days. And I should note for folks, because I realized I didn't explain this in the beginning, that Jeff and I are here together as a result of an RDI, an American Purpose partnership, where we're going to be looking at what can be done to try to stiffen German-American resolve. When we look at this idea of fake peace plans from Putin, what do you mean by that? So it is my view that this proposition is not so complicated. It is my view that we need to support brave Ukrainians politically and with all the necessary military assistance to drive Russian forces out of their country. Vladimir Putin cannot be permitted to take land by imperial conquest and through this dreadful series and sequence of atrocities. It's unbelievable. He must be defeated. It would be a victory for Ukraine, to the region. I think it's a victory for Russia, ultimately. And I think in this larger struggle between liberal democracy and authoritarianism, I think there are three, four, five, six, seven things at stake all at the same time. I think a fake peace plan, as I call it, is when Vladimir Putin gets to October, and maybe it's November, December, January, and he calls the German chancellor, he calls Paris, and he says, you know what, it's time to end the bloodshed. It's time for pragmatism and peace to prevail. We need a process, and he's going to try to keep territory that he has taken by wicked and vicious military force. I think it's going to be a Big test in Europe, and maybe the Biden administration in Washington too, but that's a bad piece. That rewards aggression, leaves him embedded, dismember or takes away from Ukraine's sovereignty and integrity. That would be a fake piece. That's not a real piece. That's not a just piece. It's not an enduring piece strategically. And I think that's the last key point, right? I mean, when you say it's not a real piece, it's not a real piece because it's not an enduring piece. Right. Right? I mean, if Putin says, look, uh, guys, I'm done here. You know, I've done what I wanted to do. I've denazified the country. Give me the land that I've conquered, you know, or maybe even give me 75% of the land that I conquered. You know, I'll pull back, you know, 10, 20 miles just, you know, as a show of good faith. But give me the rest and the killing will stop, right? I mean, 
number one, part of the reason he would want to do that in the first place is because his army has been cut to pieces and any kind of pause would give him time to regroup. So with respect to that enduring peace component, it would be peace for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then what's to stop him from going again? And I guess, you know, on that point, you know, let me dig in a little bit and, and maybe even play devil's advocate a bit. Are there any security guarantees or is there such a thing as a sufficiently robust security guarantee for Ukraine that would or should enable it to even think about coming to any kind of table with the Kremlin? Or basically, does that just not exist? So, of course, Ukraine and its elected government will speak for Ukraine and respect their vision, their values, and how they define their interests. Having said that, and you and I have talked about this here in Berlin, we think if you're a friend and ally, you're entitled to give advice. Advice doesn't have to be taken, but I think you're actually obligated and it's responsible to give advice. My own view is this. There's only one security guarantee for Ukraine going forward, and that's simply membership of NATO because of the credibility and power of the United States of America. I know some people think that's undiplomatic or inelegant or too crude, but it's NATO backed principally by American power. And it doesn't take much uh, to do the thought experiment that if Vladimir Putin remains embedded, he will not act in any way in good faith. And the moment that he, as a predator state, can act again, and there's insufficient deterrence, he will act. And by the way, we have these you know, conversations in Western Europe and the United States, and they're, now I sound a little bit condescending, sorry, that they're interesting and they're stimulating. The closer you move east, the more reality sets in. <laughs> Try some of these think tank conversations in Poland or in the Baltic states or, or Romania. No legs, no chance, dumb. They understand raw power. They understand pure, simple logic of defense and deterrence. And they know what they're up against. The notion that Vladimir Putin suddenly becomes actor in good faith on anything is a very dangerous illusion. You know, I think back to one of the conversations we had with a prominent German intellectual. And, you know, this person essentially was making the point that, number one, Ukrainians should consider establishing some form of dialogue with Russian citizens to try to bridge those divides. Mm -hmm. And number two, that in order for Ukraine to fulfill its kind of EU aspirations, it should, you know, even in the midst of war, prove that it understands that one, you know, that people shouldn't have to pay for social services and, you know, things like that. This idea of trying to, you know, establish a civil society in Ukraine that is exactly similar to the one in the EU. And it just struck me how far removed both of those observations were from the reality on the ground in Ukraine, right? Both of them were just incredibly aspirational 
and with very little in common with what is arguably remotely feasible, given the fact that Ukraine's very existence is at stake in this war. I don't know if that struck you in the same way. Very much so. So there's the Ukraine conversation, there's the neighborhood East Europe conversation, and then there's the American and West European conversation, and that is striking. And those issues are important. And as you and I have discussed in person, I'm in Berlin, you have to have context, you have to have perspective, you have to have priorities. All these things can be worked out if Ukraine can prevail in this war. All these things become much harder, if not impossible, if Ukraine loses this war. So to me, the simple, clear priority is more weapons, quantity, better weapons, quality, flow must continue, and political support must remain solid, 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 solid until those brave and inspiring Ukrainians can prevail on the battlefield. And by the way, footnote to that, if there is any kind of negotiation at the end of this, and there probably will be in some fashion, you and I heard this from Germans, actually. We heard that leverage on the battlefield is everything, but not something, but everything. So priorities. Ukraine, when this is done, we, like all countries, but Ukraine has 10 problems, 20 problems, 30 problems that we'll talk about in other podcasts. But right now, the clock is running. This fall, this winter, this spring, if they cannot prevail on the battlefield, Anything about Ukraine-Russia dialogue, civil society, European values, it all washes away. They have to win first. I think that's what it is. However many flaws there may be, focusing on any of them without understanding that the war is really the overriding concern is, you know, it's all, I think it's almost the definition of missing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Let's kind of take a step back and refocus on Germany, right? I mean, that's where you and I are, and and that was the purpose of our trip. And you are very much a German expert. You have a PhD in the subject. And obviously, you know, the last few days, I think, have been incredibly eye-opening for today's status quo. So I wonder if you could sort of break down the landscape. You know, what does the political landscape in Germany look like right now, and what does that mean for German leadership on the world stage and for the German response to the war? Thank you for noting that I have a PhD, Georgetown, by the way, in German area studies. Being a German expert means knowing all the things you don't know about a country which is so great and rich and complicated in history and politics and culture and all that. But I do consider myself a student of things German, like lived in one institute here, as you mentioned, the top. So the short, the primer is that the Social Democratic Party, led by its Chancellor Olaf Scholz, have a struggle because that is the party that has been principally, well, choose your language, Russia accommodationist, committed to dialogue, I would say almost regardless of the price. The believers in that party chiefly, you can say some are corrupt. Gerhard Schroeder is 
undoubtedly a corrupt figure, but people who believed at the best that things like Nord Stream 2 were facilitating peace dividends. I mean, it's terribly naive and terribly misguided and maybe cynical and profiteering involved. But the SPD has a big transformation ahead of itself. I don't think things change overnight. I think Schultz, by some standards, has done really more than I would have expected. Not enough and more than I would have expected. But that party has a DNA that is Russia-oriented. And by the way, not oriented to the small and medium-sized states of Central and Eastern Europe. It's a Russia-first party, I do believe. Then you have, I'm just giving you the short view because there are a number of parties in Germany, but the Greens, one of the coalition partners, how they've changed over the years, and not just in this crisis. They've been changing for years. And of course, it's environmental party. They've shed virtually all of their anti-Americanism over the years. They're NATO-oriented. And they've been very tough on Vladimir Putin and very clear and very consistent. Elena Baerbach is the foreign minister. She's a German Green. And then you have in the opposition the Christian Democrats, and they have to find their way. They've had their own pro-Russia ties, business ties, stability kind of, you know, over human rights and so forth. And, and they're both pressuring Schultz to do more, but they probably have to put their own house in order too because they don't have a spotless past. That's quick overview. There are other parties. They're all trying to figure out their spot in this new German foreign policy world that requires more assertiveness, more honesty about the relationship with Russia, and and we hope a policy in each and every case is more mindful of national security issues and, and I hope more mindful of human rights and rule of law. Greens have been very good on these issues and the others mixed bag, B+, plus, sometimes much worse. You mentioned earlier that Germany is an economic giant, but a political dwarf. But the thing that struck me was that during dinner the other day, our German host mentioned that they themselves, the Germans themselves, sometimes see the nation as a dwarf, whereas the rest of Europe and probably the rest of the world, sees them as very much a giant. And that's a really interesting thought. I mean, you don't frequently hear from political leaders of their respective nations that they think of the nation as a dwarf. And, you know, I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that, you know, where that mentality comes from and what it leads to in terms of Germany's foreign policy. So that expression economic giant, political dwarf, goes back to the Cold War and to the times of West Germany. I think it's hard sometimes for us and for us Americans in 2022 to understand the profound effect that the Holocaust had on Jews and victims forever, but on the perpetrator nation. Germans went into the post-war period, occupied, of course, and to be sure, with a deep, deep sense of shame, of guilt, of responsibility, and with this new imprint or DNA of reticence in foreign policy, strains of pacifism, the responsibility not to lead, but to wait, and not to go alone, 
but to join with others multilaterally. We can mock that and belittle that, as sometimes Americans do, as being weak and temporizing in the midst of a crisis. But this modern German culture, we heard at dinner the other night, a very respectable politician saying, we don't feel comfortably in the leadership on these things. I think that's a bit of a cop-out. I think it's muscles that have atrophied over years and years and years, but it doesn't mean it's genuine. I actually think that Germany would do more if America did more and then lobbied Germans to do more with us on tanks, for example. Why should it be that way? I don't know, but it is that way. These things are processes. So this is another moment in modern German history where Germany takes a step forward in the maturation and the responsibility of German foreign policy. But it's been a very long process. And, you know, it is what it is. Maybe it's okay that Germany is not the most assertive military power in Europe. Maybe. I'm going to play devil's advocate again here. Donald Trump, when he was president, right, made the argument that the Europeans were fleecing us. We were paying all this money for their security. They weren't putting any money in. Well, if they're going to do that, then screw it. And then, you know, we heard from a number of his former staffers that he was even seriously considering, you know, either leaving NATO or questioning the value of Article 5, which would have essentially been the same thing and so forth. And then, you know, you've heard from some people from some quarters an argument of, well, Trump actually lit a fire under the ass of the Europeans and, you know, woke them up to the fact that the U.S. might not always be there to protect them and that they actually would have to invest in their own security. So, you know, that's that's one set of arguments. The other kind of, I think, set of arguments are the arguments that you and I have been hearing over the last few days, which is that, look, you know, if one were to want Germany to do more, and not just Germany, but Germany, France, and so forth, but, but obviously we were focused on Germany, if we want Germany to do more, then the U.S. has to lead by example. And not only does the U.S. have to lead by example, it also has to twist arms and exert pressure in order to make sure that the Germans follow suit. You know, and these are, I think, pretty different viewpoints, right? One essentially mm -hmm. is a viewpoint of a more assertive and robust EU in the absence of U.S. influence. And the other is a vision of a more robust and assertive e EU, but with, not just with the presence of the U.S., but with American leadership. So I wonder which of those two visions do you find to be more compelling? This, as you know, the subject of burden sharing is not new at all. It goes back decades, and it's a very valid conversation, and the complaints from our American side are legitimate. I would add the framing comments, however, and it goes to Donald Trump and some people in the United States. We don't have alliances for reasons of charity. It's not because we want to be kind to people. We do, but they're not charity. We have alliances to advance our interests. In fact, alliances through history have always been a way of enhancing the power of one or more particular nations. So that goes to the partnership with the Germans as well. Of course, we want them to do more. And you know, you said Donald Trump let a fire on them under the European. I mean, maybe he did. I mean, I, my own view is 
If there was a fire lit, it was more lit by H.R. McMaster and John Bolton and Secretary yeah. Mattis and Chief of Staff John Kelly and these professional qualified individuals and not President Donald J. Trump. That's my view. Leave that aside. But to the main point, we want and need the Germans to do more. We benefit nevertheless through alliance relationships in enhancing our power and increasing our room for maneuver. And then the last thing I would say is also in these conversations, be a little bit careful what you wish for. We derive benefits by being chairman of the board. Chairman of the board has more responsibility. Chairman of the board also has more authority. And the chairman of the board is bringing something to the table that the others aren't, arguably, to get him or her this position. So I always see that complicated. We need more. They should do more. But I think on balance, let me give you an example, by the way. Let's get out of high-minded principles. In the first Gulf War, if you think back, 1991, Solomon St. Mates Kuwait, uh, Secretary of State James Baker, sentinels this uh, formidable coalition of 28, 30, 32 nations to liberate Kuwait, eject Saddam's forces. It was the Americans, the British, that did most of the military heavy lifting. And the other Europeans, light to little, I think Greece contributed one frigate. But the truth is, they helped some economically, they helped some diplomatically, they helped with bases and refueling and with hospitals. They made the war more manageable and the risk diminished in having those allies. It would have arguably been a harder, more expensive, more sacrifice-oriented war if we didn't have allies in Europe. So I think one wants to look at the, let's be hard on them, let's get more, but let's look at the full spectrum of equities. That makes sense. Let's look at a different subject. We talked about the foreign policy, we talked about the politics, but one of the things that I think clearly isn't talked about enough when it comes to Germany is culture. And I don't mean political culture, foreign policy culture, I actually mean culture culture, right? You know, art, literature, music, all of these things, which, you know, arguably one we don't think about as much in the U.S. When I was a kid, right, my family's from the former Soviet Union. I, you know, grew up memorizing poetry. And while I, I certainly don't particularly understand, I think, opera or ballet, you know, I, I've been to my fair share, sometimes unwillingly, but <laughs> but I've, I've gone. But in Germany, you know, there's very much, I think, that cultural element, right, of respect for the arts, of prioritization of the arts, and so forth. And, you know, I know that you feel pretty strongly about the role that the arts and culture can play in sort of this grand, I guess, battle of ideas, between the free world and the unfree one. And I think it's really interesting. I think it's an argument and a position that we don't hear a lot about in the U.S. And so I, you know, would love for you to tell us a bit more about how you think about it. How do I think about it? I think that to be a healthy, functioning human being, we need to activate both hemispheres of the brain, not one or the other both aligned and integrated. I think the same thing applies to a society. 
different skill sets, different industries, different professions. They all play a role, but it's not my vision to live in a country or society that is defined entirely by transactional and utilitarian purposes. I think faith plays an important role. I think art and the arts and music play an important role, not for everybody and not all the time. Think of our subject matter, foreign policy, the battle against tyranny, of a figure like Václav Havel, who was the first president elected of a free Czechoslovakia, so three decades and change ago. He was a magnificent president. He was a deeply profound, influential leader. Did it matter that he was a playwright? Did it matter that he was a man of of the word and of theater? He spent time in prison, up to five years in change in different episodes of his life. Somehow, it helped form him as a leader who could mobilize millions of people at home and abroad around a cause and a purpose defined by liberty and the quest for democratic self-rule. Doesn't mean you have to have that background to be effective. I'm just singling out one person who was effective, who came from a literary background, became a politician, an elected politician president. So Germany, you know, it's a complicated country and it's it's not a monolith, just as the United States is hardly a monolith. But because of its history, for a variety of reasons, literature, music, philosophy, not in every household, you know, not for every individual. But I think the arts and culture are largely regarded. And, I, you know, have you ever found a state, society, or country where you would say, great moment in history, but, you know, they're listening to too much music. That was the problem. <laughs> and theater was thriving in that period. What a shame that was. Uh, you know, it just seems to be it adds to richness and breadth. I just wrote a little piece about an American blues singer named Ma Rahini, who had this great line. She said, you don't sing the blues because they make you feel better. You sing because it's a way to understand life. We're all trying to understand life, and there are a hundred ways to do it. Through the arts is one. You kind of talked about it almost as an independent thing of the political world, right? I mean, you mentioned Václav Havel as an example of someone mm -hmm. who came from the arts, who was successful in politics, but you, I think, stopped short of drawing a line from one to the other, right? You said, you know, he happened to be successful in both, but, you know, I mean, Angela Merkel arguably was quite successful politically and she was an engineer. Mm -hmm. You know, so I wonder if I could push you a little bit on this. Could you draw a line from one to the other? Yes, but you can't draw a line that's direct and solid. Wouldn't that be nice? It's convenient, it's tidy, and it shows some sort of causation, perhaps. The, the lines are squiggly dotted lines. And so that makes it, you know, a little bit frustrating hard to quantify. For some people, that means less meaning. But again, there are connections. And I think if you look through history, I'm not trying to propose a template or create a model or suggest A is the case, because then you can counter what about this, and then I counter what about that. But, but oftentimes, in the history of great leadership, great leaders have involved themselves in writing and literature, or with Churchill painting, 
Not always, but let's stipulate often they've been people of some breadth, actually, in some depth. Not easy, by the way. For me, these things are aspirational. Who has time for all this stuff, honestly? But I think it's a discipline, and I think you have to believe in it, and you have to allocate time for it. But not direct lines. It's not a payoff. It's not a transaction. It's not a dividend. It's all the stuff that's less obvious than we would like. And it maybe offers meaning, right? One of the things that at RDI we've been thinking a lot about is that question of meaning and how I think a lot of folks lacking either, you know, a religious base or a civic base or a personal base in terms of like a tight-knit group of friends, well, they look for meaning elsewhere. And sometimes they'll find that meaning in the form of a more extreme political community, right? Where Mm -hmm. that political identity ends up consuming your personal identity, thereby making you that much more susceptible to extremism and radicalism and inflexibility and an unwillingness to compromise because that political ideology has become the end-all be-all. So as I'm thinking out loud, I wonder if culture and the arts and so forth don't offer one outlet among many that might actually make people a little bit more flexible and a little bit more open to a variety of diverse points of view. I think that's all very interesting. So on meaning, undoubtedly, I mean, life is fragile, life is short, and no one has written on their tombstone, eight million units sold, (laughs) or died at the age of 91, net worth $38 million. No one thinks about that. No family, no friend, and not that person on their deathbed. So meaning is very important. Now, you challenge me, I'll challenge you. Yes. However, you know, can appreciation for the arts and culture, music and theater add to one's understanding of liberty and pluralism and tolerance, respect for diversity? I think so. And yet we have case and case and case in history. Think where we are right now in Germany and Nazi Germany, where good heavens, you know, many of the top Nazis, they loved music and Brahms and Beethoven and Bruckner and Mozart, and they sent people to gas chambers. How that, you know, it did not have a humanizing effect at all. I mean, how can that possibly be? I can't begin to explain that, but that's part of the puzzle too. You know, I was really hoping to end this podcast, Jeff, on such a positive note about culture being a unifying factor and how it might, you know, help us find meaning and help us be flexible. And here you have to bring in (laughs) the Holocaust. But perhaps that's appropriate given where we are. and, And that's appropriate, I think, given what is on the minds of German leaders. You know, I think it's ubiquitous. It's something, honestly, that almost surprised me a little bit, you know, the ubiquity of references to the Holocaust, of people thinking about it and the role that it continues to play in German political society. It's not a challenge that will be easy to overcome, but it is something that I think the German people are going to have to both live with and to some extent overcome if Germany is to play a significant role in defending global freedom and, you know, which obviously we believe that it should and that it can. 
But on that note, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me tonight and express excitement about continuing to work with you on this project. My pleasure. Looking forward to all of it. Great being in Berlin with you. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend. Or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.